esta semana en FX Guide TV. Echamos un vistazo a la reciente conferencia del SIGGRAPH y exploramos las nuevas tecnologías y tendencias en la principal conferencia a nivel mundial de gráficos por ordenador. Todo esto y más a continuación. Hola, bienvenidos a FX Guide TV. Soy vuestra presentadora, María Castelló. Si quieres investigar más sobre los gráficos por ordenador y efectos, no hay mejor lugar que la conferencia anual del SIGGRAPH, celebrada cada año en América. Todos los años, los mejores investigadores y profesionales de la industria se reúnen, a diferencia de otras ferias, las cuales se centran principalmente en la exposición comercial, el foco principal del SIGGRAPH es la investigación. Aunque cada año vamos a encontrar una exhibición, está quedada relegada a un segundo plano por las conferencias, ponencias y cursos que han hecho del SIGGRAPH convertirse en un evento clave del calendario digital. Este año el evento tuvo lugar en Nueva Orleans. Cada segundo año el evento se celebra fuera de Los Ángeles y estas ferias son naturalmente más pequeñas que las grandes celebradas en Los Ángeles. Esta edición no fue ninguna excepción, especialmente dada la situación económica. De cualquier manera, una feria más pequeña significa más oportunidades para verlo todo. Hemos enviado a los chicos a cubrir el evento para FX Guy y os lo hemos preparado todo en español. Hay que entender que una feria como estas puede resultar un poquito dura si no tienes un buen inglés técnico. Las ponencias este año quizás han tenido menos fotografía computacional que el año pasado, lo cual nos ha sorprendido dado que pensábamos que esta era una de las áreas de mayor crecimiento dentro de la investigación de los gráficos por ordenador. Lo que sí fue evidente una vez más era la migración hacia el procesamiento por GPU. Simulaciones de pelo y subsurface scattering fueron demostrados en tiempo real y en alta definición empujado por el mercado de los videojuegos, pero todos los fabricantes de software han estado explorando el procesamiento en tiempo real por GPU. Como seguimiento a nuestro anterior episodio, la estereografía en 3D fue el otro gran tema, mostrando trabajos de grandes producciones en 3D como Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs o App. De hecho, Pixar tiene media docena de conferencias este año, cubriendo distintas facetas de la producción, desde diseño de vestuario hasta cinematografía digital o producción de estéreo, tanto para App como para su corto Partly Cloudy, pero también para el próximo estreno en estéreo de Toy Story 1 y 2 y el nuevo Toy Story 3 el año que viene. Uh, the body shapes being round or flat mm -hmm. and I was wondering whether or not in those sort of instances you were always stereoscopically applying what one might say a, a universal approach to the shot or were you individually giving dimensionality to characters that were different to the other characters and then recombining them? Yeah, no it was definitely on a shot by shot, story point by story point basis. I think visually we're so used to seeing flat imagery, characters that are flat as a pancake, that it wasn't a stretch for us to see characters that were not completely round, that it would not harm your experience or pop you out of the movie if the characters weren't perfectly round and dimensional. And so it wasn't necessarily a goal of ours to, to always fight for perfect roundness of character. We were more concerned with how does that depth play overall in terms of your reaction to the imagery and your emotional involvement with the imagery. But what's the stereoscopic maths, if you like, that gave us the, the difference between the, um, the convergence and obviously the, 
the disparity between the lenses. Was it always the same across the whole shot or inside the shot? Did different characters have different amounts treated on them, if that makes sense? We largely did not animate cameras within shots. Okay. Um, you're able to do that in moving cameras, and they hide themselves rather well. But to my taste, you can discern a little change in interocular distance over the course of a shot, and it, it can be distracting or just feel slightly odd to your eye. And so we largely tried to set one setting and leave it at that and trust that the story is more important, the animation is more important, the dialogue is more important than trying to absolutely fine tune that 3D throughout a single shot. And so that we shift gears a second and talk about Toy Story 1 and 2. That uh, was being re-3D from a traditional film. I'm wondering, did you go back to a source file level and just re-render with two cameras? Or was it a matter of saying there's so much done to this and it was so long ago that we're going to take the, the finished frame, as it were, and then dimensionalize it by, by extracting a second camera? Um, we went back and resurrected the whole show. Yeah, we had some very smart people who worked on the original show come in and resurrect it into today's software. So I was able to just go in on our current software package and, and redo the stereo, and the renders went very quickly because the shots were so light compared to, to modern shots. And so, yeah, we recreated, re-rendered both eyes for every, every shot. And were there any uh, problems? Because there probably wasn't much that was done as like a post-process, because Pixar's pipeline, especially back then, was very heavily about getting it right in the 3D renders. But was there any stuff that you'd kind of, at the last minute, they sort of had to 2D composite and you always had to sort of reconstruct? Yeah, there was, you know, there were quite a few paint fixes and things that you're absolutely right. We'd then have to go by hand and, and make sure those offsets were correct. So we discovered those along the way. Um, I think certain shows vary. Toy Story wasn't too bad. Toy Story 2 wasn't too bad. I understand that Cars, although I wasn't on the render team, is very challenging. There were a lot of paint fixes, a very sophisticated show, very hard to render. So whenever anyone mentions Cars 3D, faces go white. <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, it wasn't, wasn't too bad. We had a pretty small team to, to crank out Toy Story and Toy Story 2 and make all those changes that you're mentioning. In Up, one of the things that I really liked was the way the reflections worked, especially with the mirrors and things in front of and behind the mirrors. Did that yeah. pose any unique problems? Because it really gave it just, especially with glass, tremendous effect. Yeah, um, it did. We had to carefully go in, and some of the ray, ray tracing renders um, automatically fell into the proper reflections. Others didn't, so we actually manipulated those with a second camera in that re reflective uh, parts, like eye view. Um, one thing we're finding with reflections is tough. With, with ray tracing, your reflective, prop, your reflective surfaces gain the depth of the distance to the, the light that's making that, that reflection. And oftentimes, that's distracting. Um, cars, for instance, um, on the hood of a car, you know, a, spotlight might be sh a street light might be shining on it, but then the street light reflection in that hood feels like it's you know, 30 yards away down into that hood, where in real life, although that's essentially what's happening, you very much sense that that light is at the surface of the hood. Um, and so we're sort of struggling with that and battling that to see which re reflective properties do we want to have that reflection just rest in depth where on the reflective surface and which ones do we want to have it reflect the depth. Like an actual mirror in a hallway, of course, you would reflect the depth of that back wall behind it. But things on, you know, there's so many reflections, reflection off of your your lanyard here, or you know, that to me looks like the depth is right at the lanyard. But if we rendered that out, it would it would inherit the depth that from the reflective um, property behind it. So, so yeah, that's been a challenge for us. Well, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Sure. Thanks, man. En cuanto a las nuevas tecnologías, se presentaron trabajos de efectos y de películas, así como la usual o inusual exhibición de nuevas tecnologías. En la parte de cine. 
Pixar presentó sus nuevos software para servidor y Tractor, el nuevo programa de granjas de render, y The Foundry presentó Nuke y una muestra tecnológica de su avanzado tracking en 3D. Simon, thanks for joining us. We've been really interested in the work that the Foundry's been doing with stereo tracking. Can we have a look at some of that? Certainly. Um, right, let's just begin with um, stuff we've been doing with, um, let's call it conventional stereo. So, um, what I have here is I've just got a, um, a stereo sequence, a fairly short stereo sequence. Um, and I'll just scroll through that a bit. So, it's a, it's a track through a graveyard. And um, what we can then do with that, obviously we have this um, new piece of camera tracking technology that's um, uh, coming, into, um, coming into our product uh, later on in the year. And if I just show you what we end up with from a stereo track, obviously we track stuff in 2D as per normal, and the tracker then calibrates both cameras simultaneously. Um, so what we end up with from there is we end up with this kind of shot. Um, and so if I just zoom out of this a bit, Um, and show you what we end up with inside Nuke. We end up with the, um, the point cloud, which is kind of what you would expect from this, and we end up with the camera. And the thing about the camera is the camera is actually a stereo camera, so um, a bit like everything else in the stereo pipeline in Nuke, it actually has um, a left and a right view on it. Um, and that means that um, as we scroll through the shot, we actually have got um, the pair of cameras just calibrated like that. So there's no, there's no particular extra work an artist has to do in order to just make this work with the loop. So a stereo stream coming in, we get a stereo camera solve out, and a single image stream coming in, we get a single camera solve out. And it is almost as simple as that, as far as the user's concerned. Then, kind of moving on from that, the next thing I want to show um, is, a, is, a, is a trick we can do with the stereos, um, with the single camera tracker in Nuke but with a new um, piece of um, tech we've put together which allows us to get a depth map per frame from a moving camera. So um, in this case, I'm going to go for this quite simple um, clip here. So this is a, um, a shot of a playhouse. And of course it's mono, so it's single and frame. It, yeah, so it's a single, single, single view sequence. And um, we run the, tr the, uh, the camera tracker on that in a fairly standard way. And if I just look at the result we get out of the camera tracker, um, we end up with one of these. And so this is a fairly um, conventional looking track where you can see the sparse point cloud yeah. of the Wendy house and I can play the camera through and see where it goes. So what we've done from that is because we know um, where the camera is and we're quite good at measuring the, um, the, the shift of every pixel from one frame to another, this means we can actually start to generate depth maps. So this is the image again and I can look at the depth layer for it, which I'll just scale down a bit so we can see it more clearly. So, so I could use this for adding selectively focus or introducing... Yeah, that's the idea we're looking at. it. At the moment, um, um, it's one of those things that um, we know we can do, and so um, trying to find reasonable um, applications for it. And yes, of course, uh, yeah, adding fog in the background and depth of field effects is one of them. But we thought we'd do something more fun. So from here on, really, um, This is um, something we put together pretty much using a lot of more conventional stuff in Nuke. So if I flip to um, the scene I've generated in the 3D part of Nuke, I've actually made one of these. So this is quite a strange looking object, which I will explain. Um, okay, so what I've got here is I've actually taken the camera and at every frame I've put a mesh in front of the camera. And what I've done with the mesh is I've pushed the mesh out using um, the depth map that we've calculated from the moving camera shot. So I actually end up with this thing here, which is a very, very vague approximation of the real geometry. It actually looks quite good from the original viewpoint, but obviously falls apart quite a lot as you, get, as you move away from the viewpoint. But the, um, the spacing of everything is, is, is calibrated just about right. 
And obviously if I look through the original camera, I end up with a frame which is exactly the original frame. So I've got a mesh distorted out and I've reprojected onto it and I get the original frame. But what I get now that I don't normally get um, is that I actually can do some slight parallax shifts on the frame. So I can do um, parallax shifts, I can do slight zooms in and out of the frame, and you can see that there's a, a parallax effect going on because I've approximated the geometry from that view. I mean, get, I guess slightly what's unknown to us here is we know we can probably do it, we want the real-world examples, and then we're going to need to talk to a lot of artists about how we actually represent it in the interface and what thing tricks they then want to, to do with it. Um, it seems to me that your work in stereoscopic is, in many respects, similar, to use an analogy, to what happened with uh, the foundries. A furnace product when you had a optical flow engine and then you built out from the optical flow yep. engine as you found more and more applications. Yeah, it's, ex it's, ex it's exactly that. We, the, 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 whole, the whole of the research um, team's work at the moment is, is kind of loosely based around the idea that the world is actually 3D. Filming flattens it to 2D and we spend a huge amount of time in post reinflating it back to 3D again in order to get our work done. And so the more cameras you have on set helps you with that reinflation process. Um, and what we're trying to do is put together the tech so we know, we know what's actually in the real world in front of the camera and can make assets at the back end to make um, the, particularly comping in our case, but post in general a bit easier. Thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome. Para los más exóticos, en la exhibición de nuevas tecnologías nos encontramos de todo. Desde un control remoto para humanos, el cual controla digitalmente a un humano tirándole de las orejas, y estoy hablando completamente en serio, hasta un sistema de conferencias holográfico que permite el contacto directo entre personas en localizaciones lejanas, así como avanzados sensores de profundidad que pueden medir la variación en altura de la tinta de un billete de 100 dólares. Y esto es solo un ejemplo de la gran cantidad de innovadores artilugios que encontramos. Con muchos de ellos nos tuvimos que esforzar primero para entenderlos y luego para buscarle una utilidad práctica. Después de esta exótica exhibición, volvemos a la Tierra por un momento. Uno de los productos de los cuales estamos especialmente orgullosos de mostraros por primera vez es el simulador de fluidos de Exotic Matter. No está ni siquiera en alfa, aunque se usa en secreto en megaproducciones de Hollywood. Exotic Matter está haciendo dos cosas muy diferentes a lo que otros simuladores de fluido han hecho hasta ahora. Primero, ha diseñado su producto muy parecido a Renderman haciendo de su simulador un lenguaje o una serie de especificaciones definidas, al igual que RenderMan es un lenguaje. Y Pixar entonces hace su propio producto, PRMan, que renderiza utilizando el lenguaje de RenderMan. Exotic Matter tiene un interface de usuario que es más parecido a Nuke que a un simulador de fluidos, permitiendo una jerarquía gráfica de nodos para simulaciones de fluidos muy complejas. Para que quede claro, esto es solo el simulador de fluidos. El producto ha sido diseñado para ser integrado en cualquier pipeline de producción y ser renderizado, junto con otros objetos de la escena, como rocas, barcos, por ejemplo, en PRMAN, o en cualquier renderizador de alta gama. Si quieres saber más sobre Exotic Matter, puedes echar un vistazo a nuestra entrevista al completo en la versión en inglés de FX Guy TV con Angie. Episodio 62. 
Y esto ha sido todo para esta semana. Por favor, enviadnos vuestros mails comentándonos qué es lo que os gustaría ver en la versión española de FX Guide TV. En el próximo episodio esperamos estar con vosotros desde Miami. Hasta entonces, chao. Para más noticias de la industria, reportajes, podcasts e historias de interés, visita fxguide.com. Y para entrenamiento en el campo de efectos visuales, visita fxphd.com.